Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. This week on Making Contact. As a college undergraduate, I made a bet. I bet that my cancer diagnosis had something to do with the environment in which I lived as a child. And I think I was right about this. Renowned biologist Sandra Steingraber has made fighting environmentally induced cancers her life's work. Steingraber's book, Living Downstream, has been turned into a movie chronicling a year in her life trying to create a world free of cancer-causing toxics. All those pesticides that have run off the crops are in that water, destroying immune systems, destroying reproduction, lowering sperm count of frogs. But the first species exposed to those same pesticides are humans, and they're exposed at much, much higher levels. On this edition, we hear excerpts of the documentary film Living Downstream. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. As a young biologist, when I was diagnosed with bladder cancer, I asked that question that all people who are newly diagnosed with cancer ask, which is, why me? But as a biologist, I ask it in a very biological way. I would go into the hospital to have my checkups and to sit with other cancer patients and I would try to engage physicians or, or nurses about environmental causes of cancer. And, and that was just not part of the conversation, it was just outside the frame of the discussion. And yet I could go back to my scientific data and go into the medical library and look, about, look up information about carcinogens in cancer and there's quite a vast body of knowledge. So I was very puzzled, you know, why is there this breach between what scientists know, and even what the medical community talks about to their patients about causes of cancer. It seems like somebody needed to build a bridge. Hey, there she is. Hi, Mom. Yeah, so did you have a good trip? It was okay. Yeah, it was long. It was hard on the kids. How many more towns do we have? At one point there was 14, and Elijah thought, oh, I can't. I can't take 14 towns. So how's Uncle Jack doing? Well, I think he's doing pretty fair. Were you there when he took his first medication? He put it off for a day or so because he was having some side effects of other medications and whatever, so it was scary for him to take it. Mm -hmm. And then I said, well, when I took my chemotherapy, that I used visual imagery and a lot of, of uh, thinking and stuff, mm -hmm. and I said, I just pretended like my medication was like a Pac-Man, and that it was gonna go in there and eat up all the bad guys. Oh, no. But he's handling it really well. When you were diagnosed and I was a teenager, he was like a second he and Aunt Annie were like second set of parents to me. That's true. And we really needed their help, and now I was, you know, you and I have both been down this road, and... I'm one of those people who really does come from a family with a lot of cancer in it. I wasn't the first in my family to be diagnosed. My mother was already in treatment for cancer. She had been diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 15, and had suffered a metastasis and a spread of her cancer when I was 
17. So my mom and I were actually in treatment at the same time for a while. I think a silence fell over our family. That's how I remember it. We've become close subsequent to that, but it was after a lot of good checkups for both of us. Then slowly we found a language to talk with each other. Sometimes I say, well, my mom had metastatic breast cancer by the time she was 46, and now she's a great-grandmother, and what she always told me was, don't let them bury you until you're dead. People would say, well, how do you think she looks? Do you think she's going to make it? <laughs> they were kind of, they either want you to get well so they don't have to worry about you, or they want you to die so they don't have to worry about you. Yeah. That's what I feel. People don't like that in-between no, place. No, no. Really and that's don't. where people with cancer live. That's right, that's right. Right after my diagnosis, the first thing I did, oh, well, I wanted to go right to college, and you insisted and you I come back. pierced your ears. <laughs> I pierced my ears. Wow, that was a big, big rebellion, huh? <laughs> my aunt went on to die of the same kind of bladder cancer that I had. I have uncles with prostate cancer, colon cancer, so there's a lot of cancer in my family. But the punchline of my story is that I'm adopted. So I knew that the cancer that ran in my family didn't necessarily run in my genes. And that awareness, I think, that I brought as an adoptee, in addition to my professional training as an environmental biologist, led me to think about what else families have in common besides chromosomes. They have in common drinking water wells, often, air supplies. They often work in the same factories live downwind from the same industries or next to the same farm fields. Here's the stadium where I first ran a mile. That was a very exciting day. There's the lagoon where I caught my first fish and the hospital where I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. I had a nice view of that lagoon. This is Normandale. This is an unincorporated subdivision of Pekin that's flanked by industry. The street names are named for the products that the people in, who lived here used to make. So there's uh, Fleischmann Street for Fleischmann yeast and Cairo for Cairo syrup. In the 1990s, the people here alleged they had a cancer cluster and they asked the county public health department for an investigation. Some of the streets they alleged had a cancer patient living in every other one of these homes. And the county promised to do a state-of-the-art investigation. And what they did instead was send out surveys to each of the houses to complete and fill out rather than go door to door. And they concluded from that that there was no cancer problem here. People themselves, some of whom don't even really read, so if you're illiterate, you couldn't fill out the survey, but they also noticed something else, which was that if you had had cancer and died, you couldn't fill out the survey. The question becomes what the causal relationship between chemical manufacturing, use and disposal is, and then the number of people who are getting sick and dying. The next question that emerges is, how much evidence do you want before you begin to do something different? Do you want an inkling of harm 
Do you want absolute proof? Do you want something in the middle? And who gets to decide? Is it those who are being exposed? Is it those producing the chemicals? And that, I think, is a question of our age. The weed killer, atrazine, is one of many chemicals that we're concerned about. Atrazine is one of our most popular pesticides. It is used on more than three quarters of cornfields in my home state of Illinois. It's very water soluble and atrazine works by poisoning from within. So it's applied to the ground itself. It dissolves in the water inside the soil. It gets inside the water that runs off of farm fields into surface water. And as a falling curtain of chemicals falls with the rain. When atrazine enters the rain, it's parried hundreds of miles from where it was applied to kill a few weeds. So we are on the Salinas River. There is atrazine used here. And where we're at now, almost pretty much all of this water is from agricultural runoff. Oh, maybe there was two. Isn't that where it caught me? Maybe there was two. Because I missed one, and then one popped up right there where I missed. So it's probably one of the more contaminated areas. There's, there's good data to show this with pesticide runoff and also with nitrates, fertilizers. So it's, this is what we consider our unclean site. Yeah. Thought I heard something over here. I heard it come out of the water. That's how I think it was over here. Let's see if he has any little friends. Hello, my friend. Zero seven buffer in twenty one forty two thirty five. There's almost no aquatic environment, including rainwater, that's atrazine-free. I've always been sort of interested in how the environment can affect growth and development and reproduction. And amphibians are great for that because they are vulnerable to the environment. There's no placenta, no eggshell. There's nothing to protect it from contaminants that might be in the water. So anything that you put in the water has access to that developing embryo. So this is uh, Darnell. Darnell's gonna be famous. He's the first genetic male frog that's actually completely turned into a female upon exposure to atrazine. So he was a, he's been exposed to atrazine at one parts per billion since tadpole stage. And now he's an adult male that mates with other males and that actually lays eggs. So he's a functional female. He may very well be a hermaphrodite if we dissect him, but He's a functional female anyway, and he has now lots of genetic male sons that have also turned into females after exposure to atrazine. We've always worked in, in what I call ambient levels of atrazine. So we've always worked with levels that you would find, you know, in your drinking water, for example. Effects have been shown in fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. So every vertebrate class that's been examined. 
Atrazine has these endocrine disrupting effects that include impairment of reproduction or lowering reproductive success and performance. And we have good evidence now that atrazine turns on an enzyme, and an enzyme is like machinery that's used to convert something. And in this case, it converts testosterone into estrogen. And the frog, converting testosterone into estrogen, causes a male to turn into a female, to grow ovaries and eggs. And we now know in humans, converting testosterone into estrogen is very important in breast cancer, which is often estrogen dependent. So you might be looking at a frog underwater and a human going, gee, what's the connection? But the connections are that we use the same hormones, we have many of the same genes acting in the same ways, and we use the same water. So, so the water that, you know, when we go down to Salinas, I tell people all the time, you know, we're studying frogs in the agricultural runoff. All those pesticides that have run off the crops are in that water, destroying immune systems, destroying reproduction, lowering sperm count of frogs. But the first species exposed to those same pesticides are humans, and they're exposed at much, much higher levels. individuals who claim, as a form of dismissal, that the links between cancer and environmental contamination are unproven and unprovable. There are others who believe that placing people in harm's way is wrong, whether the exact mechanism by which harm is inflicted can be precisely deciphered or not. At the very least, they argue, we are obliged to investigate, however imperfect our scientific tools. With the right to know comes the duty to inquire. We've heard the benefits of pesticides. We've heard a great deal about their safety, but very little about the hazards. And yet the public was being asked to accept these chemicals and did not have the whole picture. So I set about to remedy the, the balance there. There were people who were expressing uh, the need to slow down and take a look at what's going on. A and that's exactly the conversation that Carson, Rachel Carson, resurrected when she wrote Silent Spring. This is one of the nation's bestsellers, first printed on September 27, 1962. Silent Spring has been called the most controversial book of the year. Biologist Rachel Carson worked four years in the preparation of Silent Spring. What she wrote started a national quarrel. We should have legislation requiring that these pesticide chemicals be thoroughly tested for a genetic effect. The major claims in Miss Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, are gross distortions of the actual facts. Children born today are exposed to these chemicals from birth, perhaps even before birth. Now what is going to happen to them in adult life? By the time I was born in 1959, DDT had reached its peak usage in agriculture and, and was already in breast milk and was already in baby food. And so that the baby boom generation came to be the first generation of children to be born with toxic chemicals in our umbilical cord blood, in our brains, in our fat. And we also have higher rates of cancer than our parents did when they were 
our age. I feel that Rachel Carson planted the vineyard, if you will, that I'm now laboring in, and her um, insistence that we begin to look closely at the links between environment and health and not turn our faces away from that is a call that I have taken up. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to more excerpts from Living Downstream, a film about the life and work of biologist and activist Sandra Steingraber. As a woman with cancer who grew up in a county with hazardous waste sites, several carcinogen-emitting industries, and public drinking water wells that, from time to time, show detectable levels of toxic chemicals, I am less concerned about whether the cancer in my community is more directly related to the dump sites, the air emissions, the occupational exposures, or the drinking water. I am more concerned that uncertainty is too often parlayed into an excuse to do nothing. What are the human rights implications of chemicals like PCBs and atrazine? The European Union decided in 2003 to ban atrazine. The U.S. government has taken a look at these same data and concluded that not enough damning evidence has yet accumulated to make a similar decision on this side of the Atlantic. You know, that room was full of politicians and legislators, CEOs, heads of boards of directors, a lot of money in that room. I was talking about things that some of the people in that room didn't want to hear. There is more troubling evidence for a link between atrazine and human cancer, based on the evidence we have right now, than there was for PCBs in the 1970s when they were outlawed. And that is a difference of politics, not a difference of science. We could insist that our state and national governments follow Europe's example. Or we could be silent and allow things to continue as they are. When carcinogens are introduced into the environment, some number of vulnerable persons are consigned to death. I think we should become carcinogen abolitionists. Here in the land of Lincoln, even one death by involuntary exposure to a cancer-causing chemical is too many. myself trying my hardest to find the best words to describe the evidence and the data and to have them not turn away, to keep them listening to me. Rachel Carson had little respect for scientists who knew the evidence but refused to speak out politically. 
I see myself as continuing to break the silence I still sense. I don't have time to put a happy face on cancer. Cancer is a waste of time, and that's the best thing you can say about it. Cancer is a serial killer. So I hope... I hope I'm... that came through last night. for just a moment to give thee thanks to praise your name. We thank you for this beautiful day, for life, Father, for health, for strength, for the good food that is before us. We give thee thanks again, praising thee in Jesus' name. Amen. So you said you had to give a speech? Mm-hmm. When, when are you going to do that? Wednesday. So are you, like, used to giving speeches and lectures and you're comfortable with that? Yeah, it's, it's one of the few things I do really well, I think. <laughs> I'm the exact opposite. I get so nervous. It was a nice breeze, isn't there, blowing? Oh, it's the best time to be on the porch. Yeah, I see though, a lot of the windmills yeah. kind of shut down. So they shut, they shut down and then they turn? They can turn a 360, but then they have to unwind to get uh, back to where they want to go. But the, like the propeller, the pitch changes continually all the time. They're seeking for the best wind and very interesting to watch. My cousin John still farms in Illinois. He has an ability to crumble a piece of earth and feel its texture, feel its friability, its ability to grow a cornstalk based on how it feels in the palm of his hand. Well, we never run out of weeds, do we? <laughs> There's always, There's always weeds. one more to pull, yeah. And they seem to grow faster than anything else in the garden. Yeah, but that, that's a good sign. If you can grow good weeds, you should be able to grow good crops, too. So, you think? Well, it means you're getting the right moisture and right sunshine. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, without those, nothing will grow. That's so. true. Well, I guess after this last rain, you're going to be out here weeding again pretty quick. Yeah, I think you're right. Every, every time we get a rain, we enjoy it, but it starts a new flush of weeds. We will use a little bit of atrazine usually in the spring, and it'd be nice not to have to use any. It's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in production ag today, it's pretty difficult not to. We try very hard to pick our places we use it. We want to keep it out of the water sources. You know, we stay, you know, hundreds of feet from any open creeks or surface drains, wells, things like that. I have incredible admiration and respect for John. He's the cousin I feel the closest to of my 20 cousins. And yet, the truth is that he uses chemicals that I believe should be abolished. I think that beyond the ability of the most careful and caring farmer like my cousin John to keep this chemical inside the weed the farmer is trying to kill. And I'm sure he's very careful. I'm sure he's not the only farmer who's very careful. Most farmers have an intense respect for what they do. And yet we still see farm chemicals in the drinking water. And we still see that farmers' children have higher rates of cancer than non-farmers' children. 
Nobody can be careful enough with the chemical like atrazine. Please join me in welcoming Sandra Steinberger. Thirty years ago, in between my sophomore and junior years of college, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. I had just turned 20. I was hoping I would live long enough to have sex with someone. I hadn't done that yet. I could not have imagined that someday I would stand before an audience of thousands and say, 30 years ago, I had cancer. Unbelievable. A few weeks ago, on a sunny afternoon, the phone rang while I was trying to meet a writing deadline. It was the nurse in my urologist's office. She was calling to say the pathologist had found in the urine collected from my last cystoscopic checkup abnormal cell clusters and also blood. What am I trying to say here? Are you fine or not, Sandra? What's the end of the story? Well, I don't know. I am living within a period of time known as watchful waiting. Much of my adult life has been watchful waiting. Watch means vigilance, screening tests, imaging, blood work, self-advocacy, second opinions, and hours logged in hospital parking garages. Wait means you go back to your half-finished essay to the tomatoes on the stove. You lay plans and carry on within the confines of ambiguity. You meet deadlines and make grocery lists, and sometimes you jump when the phone rings on a sunny afternoon. As a college undergraduate, I made a bet. I bet that my cancer diagnosis had something to do with the environment in which I lived as a child. And I think I was right about this. Ten years ago, in the fall of 1998, I gave birth to a child. I became a cancer patient at 20 and the mother at the brink of 40, which I know isn't how most people's lives are ordered, but that's how mine worked out. I am betting that in between my children's adult lives and my own, an environmental human rights movement will arise. It's one whose seeds have already been sown. I am betting that my children and the generation of children that they are a part will, by the time they are my age, they'll consider it unthinkable to allow cancer-causing chemicals to freely circulate in our economy. They will find it unthinkable to assume an attitude of silence and willful ignorance about our ecology. In the same way that I look back on the life of Rachel Carson, my mentor in all this, who died when I was five years old, and I find it unthinkable that she could not speak about her own cancer diagnosis, even while dying, as I have spoken about my diagnosis with you today. Thirty years of feminism lies between my life as an adult scientist and Rachel Carson's, so that I have never had to fear as did Carson, that my status as a cancer survivor will be somehow used to impeach my science. And in the same way, I look back on the life of Abraham Lincoln, whose portrait hangs in every schoolroom in Illinois, and marvel that our economy was once dependent on slave labor. Unthinkable. I believe our grandchildren will look back on us now and marvel that our economy was once dependent on chemicals that were killing the planet and killing ourselves, and they will think of it as unthinkable.
Now, I am willing to concede that this environmental human rights movement that I am betting on is less an evidence-based prediction than a mother's fervent hope that my children will never have to fear the phone ringing on a sunny afternoon. An environmental human rights movement is the vision under which I labor, from which I am not free to desist, and which may, if we all work together in concert, become a self-fulfilling prophecy. May it be so. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to the People's Picture Company for allowing us to excerpt the film Living Downstream, which is now available on DVD from First Run Features. You can learn more about Sandra Steingraber and the film at our website, radioproject.org. Check out our website to get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like Making Contact on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.